0: This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by University of California Press, which has loads of great titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Rebel Speak, a justice movement mixtape by Brian Bain. Rebel Speak sounds the alarm for a global movement to end systemic injustice led by people doing the day-to-day rebel work in the prison capital of the world. Prison activist, artist, and scholar Breon Bain brings us transformative oral history ciphers rooted in the tradition of call and response to lay bare the struggle and sacrifice on the front lines of the fight to abolish the prison industrial complex. Breon invites us to join conversations with changemakers whose diverse critical perspectives and firsthand accounts expose the crisis of prisons and policing. Sampling his provocative sessions with influential artists and culture workers, Brian guides discussions about the power of art and activism to build solidarity and demand justice. Rebel Speak by Brian Bain. Out now from University of California Press. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. We on the left think a lot about the rise of the West. As Marx put it, it was, quote, "...the discovery of gold and silver in America." the extirpation, enslavement, and entombment in mines of the aboriginal population, the beginning of the conquest and looting of the East Indies, the turning of Africa into a warren for the commercial hunting of black skins that signalized the rosy dawn of the era of capitalist production. But what if to understand the rise of the West, we must first understand the empires and world orders based in the East that dominated From the 13th century onward, empires that only decisively fell behind the West in material terms with the Industrial Revolution. My guest today is Aisha Zarakol, and we're discussing her phenomenal new book, Before the West The Rise and Fall of Eastern World Orders. Many continue, as Zarakol writes, to quote, date both the emergence of state sovereignty and of an international system to the Westphalian Peace of 1648. Instead, she looks back to the 13th century and the rise of Genghis Khan, whose family over three generations conquered much of modern Central Asia, China, the Middle East, and Russia. This Chinggisid empire and then empires eventually gave way to two post-Chinggisid empires, comprising what Zarechul calls the post-Chinggisid world order. Timur or Tamerlane, whose empire stretched from Delhi up to Afghanistan and Central Asia through Persia, Baghdad, the Levant, and Tbilisi, and also in China, the Ming dynasty, which under its earlier emperors was profoundly influenced by the Mongol Yuan dynasty they had supplanted. Then came the post-Timurid world order, comprising the vast Ottoman, Safavid, and Mughal empires. The Ottomans at their height controlled large swaths of the Middle East, North Africa, and Europe. The Safavids at their peak controlled large parts of Persia, the Middle East, and Afghanistan. And the Mughals ruled over the Indian subcontinent and parts of Afghanistan. What connects them all over the centuries is a particular model of sovereignty that concentrated all the power in the hands of the ruler. A sovereignty that was legitimated through conquest. As we look at the crises hitting the world system today, both domestically and globally, Zarechel's book shows us why we must broaden our vision of what a world system or world order is, and what it means for one to collapse. What makes Dig interviews different, I think, is that I have a lot of time to read books extremely closely, and then spend a lot of time formulating questions that I think will bring that book's ideas and arguments to you, the listeners, and into conversation with other books and other ideas. My secret, in short, is just extremely intensive preparation. I can only afford to spend that sort of time on the podcast because I have the good fortune to do this for a full-time job, and that's only possible because those of you listeners who can afford to support us do so at patreon.com slash thedig. And as if us just making this wonderful podcast for you, as if that were not a good enough reason for you to contribute, we also throw in some very nice gifts. A contribution of any size at all, even a dollar a month, that gets you access to our excellent weekly email newsletter. Contributions of $10 or more a month, and we will send you a book or books, a dig tote bag, or a dig mug. In the mail. Please contribute what you can. That's p a t r e o n dot com slash the dig. Okay, here's Aisha Zarakol, a professor of international relations at the University of Cambridge and a fellow at Emanuel College. She is the author of After Defeat How the East Learned to Live with the West, and her new book that we're discussing today, Before the West The Rise and Fall of Eastern World Orders. Aisha Zarako, welcome to The Dig. Uh,
1: thank you. It's my pleasure to be here.
0: You write, quote, Our modern international order, which emerged in the 19th century, has been made possible by the rise of the West. And it is Europe, the West, that has occupied its core seat of privilege for the last two centuries. Not only has this fact continuously shaped our politics in the present, but it has distorted our understanding of world political history and thus also has our theories about international politics. Many have invariably read the conclusion of the story back into that history. To start off, why is it important to understand the history of these world orders that for centuries were dominated by Asian empires? To look, to look at the East not only to explain the West, but also in its own right. Why is it important not only for the purpose of getting the history right, but also to better understand our present world order? at a time of compounding crisis?
1: Thank you. I mean, it's, it's a big question, uh, but in some ways it is the central question of the book. Uh, essentially, I mean, my argument is everybody's talking about you know the decline of the West or maybe decline of the US, the decline of the liberal international order. These decline debates are very alive in the moment. And often people try to think historically when they try to make sense of what's going on now. But the examples most people in these contemporary debates work with are rather cliche. I mean, it's usually like Rome or (laughs) maybe the British Empire. So I thought it would be worthwhile. Uh, I mean, my goal was always to write the history of the East uh, for international relations, but I thought it would be also worthwhile to do that because it it expands our (laughs) current thinking. You know, uh, there, there are these, there were these, Historical world orders in Asia that we've almost completely forgotten about. uh, And that, you know, (laughs) that maybe puts the current debate in a different perspective because it's very hard for those of us who've been shaped by the modern international order to even imagine that the West, the centrality of the West, could one day be forgotten. Uh, But the East was very central for centuries and (laughs) it's been written out of its own, own history almost. So if it happened in the East, it could happen in the West as well. And that's that's a different story than right what happened with maybe Rome or how like how that historiography is told.
0: You contrast the story and mythos surrounding Marco Polo with that of Ibn Battuta, a really remarkable fourteenth century world traveler from Tangier to illustrate just the enormity and interconnectedness of Eastern world orders, and, and also the way that Western myth-making has obscured that all. Quote, When we start filling out the space around the popular image of Marco Polo as bravely going where no man had ever gone before, with examples of other travelers who traveled all the way from China to Europe, or from Morocco all the way to China, the world of the 13th and 14th centuries surprises us. It is a world that is much more connected than we would expect, with well-established overland and naval routes. Importantly, it was the Chinggisid Empire, founded by Genghis Khan and its successor empires, that that made Asia this cohesive place. You write not not the later encounter with European colonialism, and that happened not just through political unification, but also because of trade and the circulation of ideas, experts, artists, and even occult scientists. What is revealed that's otherwise obscured when we see Polo as a visitor from the periphery to the center of a vast cosmopolitan world order with hugely expansive postal trade and governance systems?
1: Yeah, I mean, what I'm trying to do in the book is, what I was trying to do is to kind of Decenter. I mean to use this nowadays fashionable term, decenter, uh, Europe and European actors and West and Western actors. Not that they're not important or their stories are not worth telling, but for a long time we've been telling only their stories. You know there are other stories to be to, to be told. I mean, I grew up in Turkey, but I was exposed to the same, you know, idea of Marco Polo. I had this idea that, you know, when you see stuff that's especially prepared for children, it's like this idea of Marco Polo, almost like going to, <laughs> to Mars or something, like a place that nobody had really visited. And he was like the first, you know, I mean, I'm not even sure. I didn't go back and check. I'm not even sure these things are claimed explicitly, but our imagination kind of fills in the blanks um, as him being this great adventurer. But then when you discover the real history (laughs) of of these places, he's um, one among many, 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 many travelers. And then it's suddenly your sense of how Asia is and used to be, you know, changes. Because if it was so connected in the 13th century that so many people could move around, I'd recommend to the readers, to the listeners, to pick up, you know, the memoirs of Batuta. They are available. Uh, Actually, you can, you know, they've been translated. It's a good read. (laughs) And he's, you know, he's moving around uh, from North Africa to, you know, across Asia. Uh, He lives in many places he visits. Nobody is really surprised by him. Everybody kind of, I mean, that's what's remarkable, right?
0: (laughs) This sort of like easy, easy cosmopolitanism.
1: Yes. Uh, And they ask him from like, uh, his hosts ask him about where he's been, but it's clear that they already have some kind of prior knowledge of these places. So they are getting updates from him and he's able to, you know, settle in different places and, you know, kind of do his job. He's a a jurist. Um, I mean, when I was reading that uh, initially, I wasn't actually going to (laughs) to, uh, write about him. I was just reading stuff from the period for texture for my own thinking. And then I thought, I mean, this is a kind of a person like me. I mean, I, you know, I, I grew, grew up in Turkey, as I said, and then I moved to the U.S. Now I live in the U.K. And uh, I mean, it hasn't been amazingly easy, but it, it hasn't been difficult because I have the same reference and I can talk to people. I have, you know, we've probably watched similar TV shows growing up and so on. So it's not like a huge culture shock. It's relatively easy in our world to move from one place to another, because we say it's so globalized, right? But the 13th century was also globalized and connected. So that's where I start the story, because I want want the readers to have the sense of the real history of Asia or the East as a connected place, which was then fragmented. And when, you know, Europeans took over, they were kind of building over, I mean, in 18th, 19th century, on the uh, on what already existed, which was which was a very connected space.
0: Your book traces the continuity of the Chinggisid sovereignty model in shaping the world's the world's most consequential empires from the 13th century, and they last into the early 20th century when the Ottoman Empire finally comes to an end. Quote: The Chinggisid model or ideal type was marked by the extreme centralization of power and authority in the person of the Great Khan, the supreme ruler. As with Genghis Khan, Chinggisid sovereigns did not share authority with any others. They claimed lawmaking power above and beyond that of religious and other actors. What what was distinct and new about this sovereignty model compared with, compared to others that had prevailed previously or that prevailed elsewhere in the world at the time?
1: Yeah, thank you. Um, I mean, I'm I'm not sure it's entirely novel. It's possible that it has a, a versions of this existed. Uh, elsewhere, in other time periods, I don't know, maybe ancient Egypt or something. But I mean, in, in its particular manifestation, it's unique. And what makes that, what makes the Chingizid model unique, is this extreme centralization, as I call it, claiming, you know, all this authority uh, in one person. And even though, you know, we tend to think of history as, you know, history of monarchs and, you know, kings and, you know, um, other types of rulers that we would call, you know, autocracy today. Uh, Actually, a king or somebody like a king claiming all power for himself, it's not that common. In most arrangements, there is some kind of sharing of authority, uh, usually with, you know, religious authority, uh, or some kind of claim that the king's power uh, comes from, you know some type of divine right or some some kind of you know religious mandate uh, what i th- thought was unique uh, in the genghisid model again there are precursors to this also in asia i mean so it's, it's you know genghis khan gives this uh, his particular spin what's unique about the model is genghis uh, khan is you know the great khan He's the lawmaker, and he's not the lawmaker because he's a prophet or he's consulted with, you know, jurists or, you know, or he has the backing of a church or something like that. He's a lawmaker because he's a world conqueror. Um, He has the heaven's mandate, but heaven is not like paradise. It's not some kind of, you know, it's a very vaguely almost, uh, well, not. it's it's a shamanistic, you know, uh, just... Uh, notion of heaven as like the sky above so if you're as a ruler you can kind of match that on earth
0: it's more it's more like astronomical or astrological
1: yeah exactly exactly so it's more like an empirical sense of sky so if you can empirically in practice match the sky in the world uh by creating a world empire a universal empire then you know, you, you have... I mean, why wouldn't you? <laughs> why wouldn't you have all the authority? You can make all the laws and everybody has to obey. I mean, if it's not entirely unique, it's certainly rare, that degree of, uh, you know, uh, authority in one person. And of course, in his person, you know, in James Khan's person, it's a very successful, uh, you know, there's... Because he he does come very close to conquering all of the known world at the time. And... You know, even today, you know the idea of a country like Russia that spans most of uh, <laughs> most of Eurasia. I mean, that, that's difficult <laughs> to run. Uh, imagine in thirteenth century, something of that size uh, and even beyond. Uh, so that example of you know the going from you know relatively humble beginnings with a with a caveat. I mean, he he wasn't exactly you know, a nobody. He he did come from aristocratic lineage, so he did have the right to, you know, what he claimed uh, in that particular universe. But then he's able to, you know, go from not having much power at all to ruling over most of uh, Eurasia. So then his example becomes very, very powerful for uh, other rulers, you know, uh, down the line who want <laughs> to attempt similar things. So then it becomes like this model that influences a- empire building in Asia and Eurasia. And, you know, there are other historical figures like him, I suppose, you know, like Alexander and others that have played on the imaginations of empire builders. So that the story was very influential, but at the same time, the empire created its own institutions. You know, it's ruled over, as I said, a very large area for a long time. And then of course, if, you know, over a century. And if, if, if you're exposed to something for over a century, you're shaped by it. So, you know, you, I, I, even if you're emerging from out of that empire, the, the things they are going to do will be probably uh, a version of what you experienced or maybe a reaction to what you experienced, but the influence is uh, palpable even after the empire.
0: Yeah. Before we talk more about the sovereignty model, let's lay out just some of that concrete history. In the early 13th century, Temujin, who who would become Genghis Khan, consolidated power among various Mongol houses. He he and then his son, Ogade conquered present-day Iran, the Caucasus, Ukraine, Russia, much of China, defeating forces as far west as Hungary and Poland. And then his grandson, Monkey Khan, conquered... The rest of China alongside his brother Kublai. Meanwhile, another brother, Hulagu, took Baghdad and killed the last Abbasid Caliph and took Aleppo and Damascus, only to finally be defeated by the Mamluk dynasty of Egypt. It's a really incredible story. How did these, how over three generations did this house from the steppe manage to conquer so much of the world?
1: I mean they were ambitious they for reasons I explained because they had this you know expansive vision of you know of the world and you know what they were meant to do I guess they felt entitled entitled to it so I mean I, I that's the mindset uh, at the same time I think they you know they had certain you know military advantages and strategies uh, uh, there is some you know debates Nowadays, because, you know, um, discussions of climate change are uh, have become popular among historians, the effects of climate change, there is a theory that, you know, this was a particularly wet period, which made, you know, grassland <laughs> more readily available for uh, the horses uh, and made it easier for... Uh, so that maybe, why then? <laughs> uh, also, I mean, I think it's a moment... You know, 13th century. I mean, there are not really big forces opposing them. You know, the relatively politically fragmented moment uh, across Eurasia, as as you said, you know the, you know probably in addition to you know China, you know uh, Persia, is, you know or the Middle East, what we call the Middle East. This, these are the two you know centers of you know gravity. But both are not, you know, in a great uh, state politically. The caliph was very weak at the time. So it's also the fact that, you know, probably, you know, there, were, there weren't great, other great houses to really successfully resist them. Yeah, so it's probably a combination of factors of how or why they were able to do it.
0: You write, quote, the great Khan had to be a world conqueror. In the Chinggisid model, extreme centralization of political authority was intimately linked with the notion of universal sovereignty. The two went together, and this is why the Chinggisid model started destabilizing when conquests stopped. And then Chinggisid empires also managed succession, succession through what was called, quote, tanistry, a way of handling secession that is different from the primogeniture model more common in European monarchies. In Tanistry, members of the ruling house are all eligible to inherit, but there is no established order of secession. Sometimes the ruler designates as an heir before their own death, but even that is not necessarily obeyed. Typically, then, in the Chinggisid model, brothers and other relatives would fight each other to the death to claim sovereignty. How did Tanistry complement conquest to support Chinggisid sovereign legitimacy and what sort of problems did, A, the eventual inability to permanently continue conquest because you either run out of space or suffer defeat or whatever, and B, this really bloody and messy secession practice, what sort of problems did each of those two forms of legitima- legitimation pose for the stability of those ruling houses?
1: Yeah, great question. Um the idea of tenistry is linked to this need for world conquest. I mean, because the the Khan, the great Khan in this model, the chinggisid sovereign is claiming all this authority, as I said, he has to legitimize, you know, why why should he have all this power? It's because he's a world conqueror, right? Uh, and then how can we kind of make sure that the person ruling is going to be a world conqueror? I think, you know, the tenistry model comes out of that, you know, because if you just pick the the oldest son, you know there's no guarantee that he he has the the uh, natural ability to be a great conqueror. But if you kind of make everybody <laughs> fight for uh, fight for the throne, then essentially the the eligible person who conquers all of their you know siblings and uncles and so on, they've already come to <laughs> come to power by <laughs> conquest. I mean, to our mind, that this is like you know, very, to uh, modernize, it makes, you know, it looks disorderly, it seems bloody and violent. uh, And of course, in practice, it it was terrible. I mean, it's, you know, fratricide, all sorts of, you know, uh, all the way to the Ottomans, to the Mughals, you know, they use these uh, types of practices. But there was a logic to it because it's essentially you're selecting for the person who has the ability (laughs) to function in, in this way that, uh, maybe is the best guarantor that they will also, you know, go on to, uh, to conquer, uh, outside of the family, you know, once they're they're in power. So I think that was the logic of tenacity. So th- this is why we see a close association, uh, not just with the the Mongol Empire, but in the successor states, the to the extent the successor states are influenced by this original model, uh, they're s- still practicing tenacity either formally or informally, they think this is okay. So it's a kind of a secondary institution associated with this particular understanding of, of sovereignty. But as you said, both caused problems in practice. Uh, I mean, tenacity caused problems because it's created interregnum periods. So, I mean, in the original, in Genghis Khan's empire, in the Mongol empire, you know, every time uh, the ruler passed, you know there was uh, almost every time yeah, there were there were <laughs> first of all anybody who you know who could throw their hat in the ring you know had to come back from like long distances and then there were you know years uh, before you know this succession issue was settled you know civil wars but later in later successor states too you know sometimes you know the tanistry idea caused uh, you know succession crises it caused the fragmentation of some of the successor states, so in practice, uh, <laughs> it was a problem. I mean, the the silver lining is, you know, in the in the I don't talk about this much in the book, but in the in the Mongol Empire, but also maybe in the successor states, you have women ruling. Like you know, often, the interregnum period is a moment where <laughs> the the wife uh, of the Khan, you know, becomes essentially a de facto ruler, uh, and that's also very interesting you know, what seems to be a very patriarchal, patriarchal is maybe not the right word, but (laughs) male-dominated kind of system uh, in these moments of uh, interregnum and so on becomes, falls at the mercy of of the women uh, (laughs) in the system um, to keep things going. So that's one uh, angle of problem. The other issue was, as you said, you know, conquest, you know, it's kind of built into, The legitimacy of this type of empire, they had to, I mean, they were all claiming to be universal empires. So the moment, you know, they can't conquer anymore or they have to kind of exist a de facto existence with uh, another empire uh, that's claiming the same, there is a contradiction. (laughs) How can there be two universal empires? But in practice, there have to be because... Often it's more beneficial for trade or, you know, you can't keep fighting. You know, it's expensive to wage these wars. So they often, these types of rulers, ended up looking for alternative ways of legitimating their rule. They ended up converting to certain, you know, local religions, uh, often Islam, but, uh, or, you know, getting uh, cynicized uh, in China so alternative modes of legitimation and that creates very interesting hybrid forms but often spells the end of you know the chinggisid model you know increased bureaucratization yeah so there was almost uh, an expiry date built into into this type of uh, empire building because it's it's difficult <laughs> to pull off in practice
0: yeah and it wasn't just the external limits that propelled this contradiction but it's a contradiction that emerged even within the chinggisid World Order when Genghis Khan's empire ultimately fractures into four distinct Khanates. The 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 Jochid Khanate or Golden Horde ruling Russia, the Shagatai Khanate ruling Central Asia, and the Ilkhanate covering Iran and the Middle East. Again, all these words I'm using are for the facility of listeners understanding what geographically I'm speaking about, and then the Yuan Khanate or dynasty in China how did the empire end up breaking up into these four parts and what impact did that fracturing have on their ability to perpetuate empire and imperial legitimacy you write quote if there are four cons the implication is that there is not a great con how did they attempt to reconcile that contradiction and why amid what is known as the general crisis of the 14th century did they fail with all of the successor khanates ultimately all all but the golden horde losing power
1: you know originally the empire was centered in inner asia or you know what we call central asia now once china is you know fully conquered the you know center of gravity kind of gets pulled there of course because china is the old you know civilization very prosperous Um,
0: it's a big deal to be in charge of china
1: (laughs) yes yeah Exactly. So. The, the essentially, you know, what we call the Yuan dynasties, you know, the lineage of the great Khan is supposed to be there, but as they settle into ruling China, and there, there are all these, you know, of course, as we discussed, there are these succession battle- battles in which <laughs> lines are drawn, you know, one brother supporting the other brother, and uh, so there are all these resentments from these interregnum periods between the different lineages of the family, and it was also, you know, uh, their practice to because it's such a vast territory to rule over. It was their practice to uh, distribute areas under, you know, particular uh, brothers. Uh, so the, the the divisions of the Genghisid branches were uh, built into, you know, the administrative structure of the empire, even when it was unified. Uh, so increasingly these different bits, um, as you called the Jochit and the Chagatai and, you know, the Ilkhanet, they become essentially de facto independent of uh, the great Khan, Khanet, uh, which is the, you know, the Yuan dynasty. And then they initially, they're fighting each other (laughs) before this, you know, uh, autonomy is uh, recognized. But then they settle into kind of a period of uh, peace, which creates... This internal contradiction, as we discussed, because <laughs> there are four, you know, in practice, four khan's of almost, well, at least the Chagatai Khanate is weaker, but you know, of similar or comparable, you know, power. Uh, but it's good for for trade. You know, this is the period of you know Pax Mongolica. You know, the fact that they're not fighting each other means uh, the connections that they had established you know there as i discuss in the book there was this uh, postal system and essentially you know facilitation of you know trade across these territories so that can continue if they're no longer you know fighting each other so that's you know essentially what the original mongol world order or the chinggisid world order uh you know settles into uh in the 14th century what causes it what causes that particular arrangement to fragment or collapse. Again, it's debatable, but, you know, some historians, as I discuss in the book, talk about, you know, a 14th century crisis, you know, from European history, many people will know, you know, that this is a a troubled, you know, period. There is, you know, disease spreading. Again, there are different theories as to how, like, what exactly the root of spread was. But we do know that, you know, it affected, uh, at least, for instance, the Ilkhanet, you know, the, the, um, that li- line ends. And, yeah, and then there are other, other you know, other troubles, you know, financial and others. So that's a kind of a running theme in the book. You know, when you look at history in this long durée, <laughs> it becomes apparent that it's not necessarily like particular things particular rulers did. um. But it's more, you know, there are these bigger patterns, um, you know, different states or empires or houses, as I call them, seem to run into trouble around the same time, which suggests to me that there are things that are beyond, you know, political choices of particular rulers. And so I think that's maybe what's happening uh, in this midpoint in the 14th century, like structural uh, pressures that caused the... real fragmentation of this uh, this world order.
0: Why did each of the successor Khanates become more religious than Genghis Khan's larger empire had been? And and in what way did these empires become more religious, given that while Genghis Khan ejected the shaman from office, his, his claim of the mandate of heaven was also so critical to his legitimacy? And we, we touched on this a bit earlier, but... I guess more specifically, how did the role played by astronomy, astrology, and other forms of occult sciences in legitimating Chinggisid sovereignty compare to religious forms of legitimating sovereignty—Buddhism in the case of the Yuan dynasty, and Islam in the case of the Jochid, Shagatai, and Ilkhanate?
1: Yeah. So, as I said, as as these successor khanates have to exist in the world and they're no longer expanding and they kind of have to coexist together, uh, they start looking for uh, alternative modes of legitimation, I think. Um, and the issue is, you know, how do you get, the issue is always, how do you get people <laughs> you're ruling over or governing over accept your authority? And as I've said before, one time-tested way is religion, um, if if you share uh you know, a religion of of your subjects, or even if, if if you don't, but you know, you you are recognized by, you know, particular religious authorities as having authority, that that's a great aid in legitimizing sovereignty, or has been historically. Uh of course there may have been political reasons, I mean personal reasons, I'm sorry, as well. You know, maybe they were initially like Genghis Khan and his family, they used to have representatives of different religions come and debate in Karakorum, which was the capital for like their entertainment. So that's going on. Yeah. So the, the Western khanates uh, convert to Islam. Interestingly, you know, Golden Horde, what comes to be called the Golden Horde, the Joshit dynasty or Joshit khanate. I mean, they should all be called khanates. That's what's also interesting about historiography. We call them different things, which makes them seem like different different things, but they were actually <laughs> originally, uh, you know, far off the same thing. They they also convert to Islam, even though they are in, you know, northern steppes, the area we call Russia, and, um, you know, taxing uh, cities of Rus. Um, so they don't co- convert to Christianity. But it may that may be also because, you know, when the Mongols are operating, like this empire, 13th, 14th century, Again, the you know two centers of civilization would be like China and and the Middle East. Europe was very peripheral. Christianity was peripheral. I mean, it didn't you know there wasn't much of an argument for it? Maybe that that's also probably part of it. And that you know so temporarily solves their problem of uh, legitimation, at least for in some realms. Uh, but it also creates you know other problems because there's a contradiction. Between the Chingizid model and Islam, you know, in Islam, universal sovereign is Allah. You know, it's not, it's not, it's not Genghis Khan. Like, so how do you reconcile uh, a particular understanding of sovereignty that puts all the power in the ruler on earth <laughs> with uh, you know a worldview you know that essentially puts it elsewhere? You know, in 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 the beyond. And of course it's it's a big shock for you know Islamic societies as well, because Islamic societies had evolved their own version of you know separation of church and state you know before before, before the the Mongols came over uh political rulers were not that powerful they didn't make laws the ulama i mean if, especially if we're talking about you know the sunni side of it. The ulama, like the Islamic jurists, they interpreted Quran, they made essentially jurisprudence. The ruler was like, you know, the sword, the defender of like society, but they didn't have internal, you know, that much authority. Like they had to always kind of consult. And then there was also the caliph. So it was like a three-way division. (laughs) It wasn't, authority wasn't centralized. Uh, Suddenly you have, you know, this Mongol model where, you know, the Khan says, I'm Muslim, but I'm still making <laughs> making all the laws. Uh, and how do you like reconcile that with you know the idea that uh, in Islam Sharia, like you know it's it's supposed to be the Quran and the way it's interpreted that you know people are supposed to get their ideas of what the law is. So there's that creates an issue that way. And al- also you know of course China there it has its own you know checks <laughs> on this type of you know centralized authority. So there's, you know, there are issues there as well.
0: Timur, you write, combined various legitimacy models, Chingisid, Persianate, Islamic, and Sufi messianism. Quote, he was building on the Khanate experiment of hybrid legitimation of sovereignty. Say a little bit more about how did he gather all these threads to embody this position, identity, role of Sahib Quran, lord of conjunction, and, and what was being conjoined in that there?
1: So I mean the conjunction is the Jupiter Saturn conjunction, which is. Uh, so it was considered. I mean, why another one happened? I think <laughs> recently I can't remember exactly when, but I, in the book I had made a note of it. I think it was in twenty twenty, you know, marking, as they believed, the beginning and the ends of time. Also great, you know, great events and great, uh, m- man, and, yeah, th- this idea becomes really. Elevated and attached to—I mean, as as I said, it's—it's an idea that's you know in the culture, but it really becomes attached to Timur. Timur is, uh, you know, he's very ambitious. Uh, He's—he's not from the Chingisid house, so he has a problem with pedigree. Uh, But he does remodel himself. I mean, remake himself in the image of Genghis Khan. He like deliberately follows his you know (laughs) life story. Mary's a Genghisit woman, you know, so he wants to be a Genghisit sovereign. That's the way I define it. And he's definitely, you know, playing up that image. At the same time, he's existing in a world where he can't fully claim that. So he's, you know, he's using other ways of legitimizing his empire. The empire is building <clears throat> by conquest. And at this point already, like, all the, all the... All the lineages, like the different like houses of the Mongols, had most of them had converted to Islam anyway. So he kind of has to operate within that milieu. Um, and this is West uh, Central Asia. So it's, you know, there are, it's the Persian world, you know, there are, you know, Persian notions of kingship. All of this is kind of <laughs> percolating. And of course, these Sufi ideas of Messianism. So all of that is there. And you, you kind of work with what you have. <laughs> and he's very successful at that. And as I said, I think the, the astrological story is what kind of ties all of it together. Because it's cutting across different understandings of empire, kingship, sovereignty. It's like their common <laughs> common language. I mean, astrology, it seems silly, like because we think of astrology today, as, you know, like, do you read your horoscope, like, on the internet? I mean, a lot of people do, but I think very few people, like, really believe it. But in that world, it's quasi-scientific, you know? It's not like, you know, there are no horoscopes. It's more, you know, there are these people who study, you know, star charts, and I think they're kind of, I like to say, they're kind of like the political scientists of their day, Um, because they have, like, you know quasi scientific language and they make predictions and you know you were born close to a jupiter saturn conjunction therefore of course you were destined to be a ruler but of course it's a bit imprecise like how how close <laughs> how close were you born right there's
0: a bit imprecise like much of contemporary political science <laughs>
1: yeah like it's like it's like polling or something you know you can kind of make it uh sound the way you like um but it's it's this you know, because it doesn't belong to a particular religion or particular culture. I think it's it becomes the glue that, you know, kind of ties, <laughs> ties all these different experiments of authority building together.
0: The fall of these four Genghis-descendant empires in the 14th century and the rise of the Timurid Empire, which, just to clarify for listeners, stretches from Delhi up to Afghanistan and Central Asia through Persia, Baghdad the Levant and Tbilisi, just enormous. So that, the, Tim, the Timurid Empire on the one hand, and then the Ming Dynasty in China on the other, you write that this comprises a new world order. And Timur's case, as we were just discussing, is is pretty obvious. They took over much of the territory of what had been the Chagatay Khanate. Timur ruled through a Chagatay puppet Khan, and he, quote, deliberately fashioned himself after Genghis Khan. But with China many wouldn't see that as so obvious with the ming which was a han governed dynasty and it and it took over after the overthrow of the mongol yuan dynasty what makes them both together constitute a new world order
1: yeah i mean one of the things i wanted to do was to link you know china into the bigger story of uh, asia or the east o- often china is studied as its own thing Uh, as, you know, certainly like a civilization, a continuous civilization across (laughs) the ages, but not really being connected to the rest of the continent, at least beyond East Asia. In my account, you know, what we call China is very connected (laughs) to the larger story of Asia and the East because it's first part of this Mongol Empire (laughs) or Genghisattva Empire. Then it's part of, you know, the four khanates who have their own kind of uh, order. The Yuan dynasty is like the other khanates, even though it's called Yuan dynasty. And then it's overthrown by, uh, Yuan dynasty is overthrown by the Ming. But of course, you know, you cannot, you know, just overthrow something and be free of its influence. I mean, this is true now in in our modern world, most states are a product of decolonization, so they've come out of you know I- imperial periods, uh, but they are very much shaped by <laughs> that experience. They may have rejected it or you know refused it and said you know we're better than them or on. But they are still you know that experience is formative to how those states function today. So why would it be any different?
0: And you could even you could even argue that it fundamentally constrains. <laughs> those states in pretty in pretty detrimental ways
1: (laughs) yes so the same is true for the Ming I mean the Ming overthrew the the Yuan and they reinstituted some of the previous practices that the Yuan had done away with but they were still at least the early Ming the early Ming uh, emperors were their understanding of like how how a ruler functions you know they had the the examples of the Yuan right so they couldn't but think of the world in those terms, even as they, you know, rejected them. So the early early Ming, uh, I argue, were very much under the influence of the chinggisid sovereignty model. So with uh, Hongwu and Yongle emperors, you know, you see like this, uh, you know, very centralized, like <laughs> autocratic, as it would be called in, you know, uh, very powerful uh, emperors who are very interested in you know external recognition I mean this is the period of you know the treasure voyagers, but also overlooked now. there were all these o- overland overtures you know embassies the four you know Han Chinese emperors they were very interested in getting to be recognized by the rest of Asia as you know the <laughs> uh, you know the great emperors uh, and that's interest comes from this Chinggisit model, because the Chinggisid model is, as we discussed, it's very external looking. It wants to be recognized as the Chinggisit ro- <laughs> rulers have to be world conquerors, world emperors, universal sovereigns. So we see that in the early uh, Ming dynasty until they turn inward and the influence of Confucianism increases, you know, for various reasons that I discuss. Until the mid, around mid-15th mid century, the early Ming uh, are acting, even if if they don't admit it, they are acting like uh, Chinggisid sovereigns, and that puts them in this competition with uh, the Timurids on the other side of Asia. So the Timurids are expansionists to the Timurid Empire, especially, you know, Timur, he wants to conquer China because uh, the Chinggisids did, so he dies on the way to China. Uh, initially, it seems like they will, you know, <laughs> they're both, in a way, Expansionary. They could have had history gone a different way. They could have fought each other, but they don't. So they settle into this kind of coexistence uh, with a shared understanding of how the world works, and they both care very much about what's happening in Inner Asia, you know, this trade route. You know, again, that's, you know, contrary to what we think today. You know, it seems, because Central Asia is relatively insignificant today, many people write, like, Chinese history, like, at least in international relations, assume that China was never (laughs) interested in, you know, inner Asia. But actually, (laughs) uh, you know, this was, like, their primary preoccupation, the early Ming too, because, again, this is where the activity was. uh, And this is, you know, kind of the middle belt between the Timurids and the and the early Ming, and there's still a lot of houses in that space with their own <laughs> ambitions and their own, you know, they're everybody's kind of participated in this shared world, uh, both you know in terms of trade, but also their how they understand like the world to be, yeah. So I argued that this was um, a relatively short-lived, you know, uh, compared to some of the others look I look at, but still uh, very much a world order. Uh, kind of like the the U.S. and the Soviet Union, you know, the Cold War <laughs> period. I think that's what I, how I like to think of uh, these two. You know, we wouldn't say the Cold War was insignificant just because you know it lasted l- less than a, a century. Uh, it was it was very significant in its own way.
0: This post-Chinggisid world order came to an end in the mid fifteenth century. With, on the one hand, the disintegration of the Timurid Empire. And then also, later Ming emperors turn inward and toward Neo-Confucianism. What, what was it about this period, what, what happened, that not only impacted the Timurid and Ming empires the way that it did, but also saw the Byzantine Empire fall to the Ottomans, the Golden Horde to fall to Muscovy under Ivan III, and the Delhi Sultanate falling to the Pashtuns, and the rival Turkoman federations, confederations that had ruled Persia, increasingly losing out to the Sufi order of the Safavia. What brought an end, not only to this post chinggisid world order, but really to ruling powers all over the place.
1: Yeah, here here we hit another, you know, crisis period, uh, as some historians call it. If you only look at you know Chinese history or like you know, the Timurid history, it looks like, you know, also nationalized histories. We tell stories of this ruler made these mistakes or like made the decision to turn inward and so on. But when you put the whole picture together, then you you, you see that there are problems everywhere, right? So what seems to be personal conscious decisions of particular rulers ends up being part of a bigger pattern. So in this period, in you know, in the 15th century, West Asia is in you know, in great trouble especially. I mean, there are a lot of, you know, dynastic uh changes. And um the Ming turn inward, as you said, I mean this is often blamed on, you know, there's this incident where uh the emperor is, you know, captured and then you know, it creates uh kind of this trauma, the Tumi incident. But I don't think that's I mean that's the you know, that's maybe a turning point, but um I think something is bigger, going, uh, bigger is going on. Uh, I mean, some possible explanations, again, they, you know, climate change, coin shortage. I mean, whatever the reason, there seems to have been a disruption of like a, a trade uh, across Asia with greater, I think, impact on <laughs> West Asia because it was so dependent on uh, West Asia was this kind of stopping point for trade, often of goods coming from China. Uh, And, you know, the West Asian polities, especially like the Timurids were great consumers of this, but they were also traders, you know, to selling to uh, Middle East and uh, Europe. And I think maybe that's part of it. But again, you know, I think it's like some kind of structural problem where the existing existing order is under, um, as I call it, structural pressures. And you can only see that when you put all the bits together, and start looking outside of you know particular, particular empires to the whole continent, uh, then it seems like everybody is in trouble around the same time, even if their reactions to it differ.
0: The fall of the Timurid order gave rise to the post-Timurid order, which was comprised of at least three great houses: the Ottomans, the Safavids. And the Mughals, and maybe you say though you don't focus on them so much, the Uzbeks as well. But you write what connected them, however, wasn't Islam. It was a particular, again, sort of sovereignty model. You write, quote, "It is tempting to refer to Islam as a Deus ex machina explanation for all this similarity, but Muslim faith on the part of the rulers and some of the subjects does not by itself constitute an explanation of anything." Instead, quote, a better term is post-Timurid empires, or empires of the Sahib Quran, Lord of Conjunction, or chasers of millennial sovereignty. What was this new and shared sovereignty model, and how did these empires borrow from both the Timurid tradition and Islamic millenarianism to create it? And also, what was this Islamic millenarianism?
1: Yes, thank you. So, as you know, as the Timurid Empire fragments, it leaves uh, in its wake a lot of people, you know, who've been shaped by <laughs> this experience. But I mean, both uh, you know, the thinkers of the day, but artists, artisans, they essentially you know travel to uh, to nearby. Well, sometimes create, <laughs> you know, the the Mughals are a direct offshoot of the of the Timurids. But also, you know, they go to, you know, Persia, which is going to be the seat of like the, the Safavid Empire, and they oh, they go to Anatolia. So so there is there is like there are people and ideas and goods, all sorts of <laughs> Timurid stuff circulating in the space that's going to be uh essentially you know the territory of these three West Asian empires. Uh, so, what what I was arguing in the book is, you know, we tend to talk about these empires as Islamic empires or Islamic uh, empires, but we don't really, you know, also, we say that, but we don't really compare them to each other. <laughs> They're often, you know, studied in their bilateral relations with Europeans. Uh, and when you put them together, what you realize is, at least in the 16th century, you know, they were uh, in many ways very similar And also they were different from other (laughs) Islamic uh, polities and empires that had existed previously. So that has to be explained. I mean, so it's not just, it's not enough to say, oh, these are Islamic empires. This is why they acted in this particular way, because then other Islamic empires didn't quite act (laughs) or, you know, uh, kingdoms uh, didn't act.
0: Especially with Shah Ismail, the founder of the Safavid Empire in 1501. I mean, he had his legitimacy formed through a form of millenarian Shia Sufism that held that he was the Mahdi or Messiah. That's not, that's not, that's not an everyday occurrence.
1: No. <laughs> so what I mean, what I'm arguing is, you know, they kind of took this Timurid experiment in reconciling Islam and the Chingizid model and took it to another level. And it, yes, Shah Ismail is the great innovator here in the beginning of like the 16th century. And others are, Essentially, political rulers claiming religious authority, whereas he is—he comes out of you know uh, this religious movement and he claims political authority. So it's a slightly different route to it. But yeah, so they are again. This—I mean—the the key thing that I'm tracing across these centuries is this centralized rule and how it's how it's justified, and you know how whether you can see the influences of the Chinggiset model in that. Uh, in that justification, and you can definitely see it uh, in this case. So, and the the key term was, I mean, there were other terms, but the key term was the Saib, crown term, lord of conjunction, which was, as we discussed, associated with Timur previously, but then became something, these three empires, those three great houses, (laughs) the Ottomans, the stuff of it, and the the Gurkhani or the, the Mughals, uh, what they were fighting each other over, you know, they were all claiming to be (laughs) lords of conjunction or, you know, lords of time. And it's, it ties into these ideas of, you know, millennial uh, sovereignty, as you said, and it goes, that goes back to what we discussed about astrology being this like common language that's bringing all these different belief systems together. The Jupiter-Saturn conjunction, I mean, I think there are small conjunctions and then Big ones, and you know the major conjunction. Uh, I think s- something that repeats, uh, supposed to repeat, uh, <laughs> by millennia. It was supposed to happen, uh, you know, in the in the 16th century. It was, you know, so Islam, you know, had come in the 6th century, and so the 16th century was, you know, the end of time in a way, and also the beginning of something. So they were competing with each other, uh, these houses to be. <laughs> lords at the end of time I mean, this is trying, starting to sound like a doctor who <laughs> episode but um joking aside it's it is really what's legitimizing these rulers who are not like previous islamic rulers they are claiming all this power that as i said before is not supposed to <laughs> rest with the Sultan, or you know, you know Suleiman. I talk in the, in the chapter on these three empires. I talk about with the Ottomans, uh, Suleiman the Magnificent. In Turkish, is known as Suleiman the Lawgiver. And when I was, uh, you know, when we were learning about that in school, it doesn't seem remarkable. Like Suleiman the Lawgiver. Of course, the of course, why wouldn't the Sultan be the lawgiver? But he was doing something that was uh, very unusual. In an Islamic society, he was saying, I can make the laws. Not, you know, the ulema have to, <laughs> have to you know, listen to me, standardized, actually, you know, religious teachings. So, and you see that with Akbar, you know, like you see that with all of them. I mean, they're claiming all this power, essentially, to uh, <laughs> to tell religious figures like, how to interpret, you know, the Quran. And that's like, you know, you, you couldn't have that without the Genghisit influence or the Timurid influence. You know, that's at least one of the lineages there. Also, I think it's important to, like, study them together because there was a lot of circulation between these courts. And, you know, you have a lot of, essentially, the intelligentsia of the time. But they, again, they, they are the astrologers and the occult scientists and so on, going from one court to another. They are writing these treatises, uh, relatively understudied compared to, like, their European <laughs> counterparts but they are writing these treatises justifying why should the ruler have all this power? You know, why should everybody kind of do? And they are justifying with reference to, you know, historical examples, but also, you know, particular interpretations of religion, astrology, and so on, all of that is in the mix. So that's, you know, studying these empires together made me see that century very differently. And then, of course, you know, the, I think the Uzbeks are definitely in the mix as another you know, great house with similar ambitions. I didn't talk about them as much because the, uh, the historiography there is a bit, you know, because I'm essentially working from the work of historians. So it was more of a problem with, you know, my access to resources rather than, you know, I'm not dismissing the Uzbeks. I think they were also important, more short-lived. And then, of course, the Habsburgs come into the mix because... As I argue in the next chapter, I don't think we can make sense of what the Habsburgs were doing unless we understand, you know, the influence of, you know, the Ottomans uh, and the others on on the Habsburgs uh, and their, you know, claims of, you know, universal sovereignty. Uh, So then the rest of the world (laughs) comes into the picture as well through these West Asian post-Timurid empires.
0: The Ottomans made a pretty plausible claim to millennial sovereignty sovereignty through just a lot of conquest. Mehmet II captured Constantinople, then Selim I defeated the Safavids in battle and also the Mamluks conquering the holy cities of Mecca and Medina. Suleiman the Magnificent or the Lawgiver continued to defeat the Safavids, capturing Baghdad, but then, quote, in 1555, Suleiman and the Safavid leader Thomas, Thomas signed the peace of Amasya, acknowledging the legitimacy of each other's dynastic and religious claims. Having failed to achieve universal sovereignty of Chinggisid or Timurid scale, Suleiman's last decade on the throne saw him embrace the pious Sunni side of his identity over millennial sovereignty. And compared to Ismail, it was harder for Thomas to claim a conqueror's charisma or a messianic aura to solve this problem. Thomas turned to the occult sciences. And quote, Ottoman Sunniization in this period was paralleled in the Safavid realms by a similar Shiaization. In other words, what you're writing is that the ulama gained increasing power to check the Ottoman sovereign, while the Safavids moved from Sufi millenarianism to a more orthodox Twelver Shia orthodoxy or what we would consider a more orthodox 12 or Shia orthodoxy today, I suppose. How did a turn to religion help these empires, like their predecessors that we've discussed, retain their legitimacy in the face of frustrated, world-conquering ambitions?
1: Yeah, it's always this, you know, trade-off. I mean, we see it with almost all of of the examples discussed in the book you know, as conquests stop, you have to kind of lean on other modes of legitimation. So we see this, you know, pattern with the Ottomans and the Safavids, as you just read. You know, that's, interestingly, I mean, that's, you know, (laughs) that's uh, a form of confessionalization, which is like studied in European history. But this is what's also happening, the Ottoman lands and also with the Safavids. And I think, you know, it's also the, what's happening here is part of the larger trend uh, or is not disconnected or what's happening in europe uh in reaction to the habsburgs is not you know disconnected from <laughs> this story either so all they're all part of the same story and that's you know the, another form of i suppose centralization i mean without getting lost too much in the weeds of, you know, the theoretical stuff in the book, <laughs> but uh, in, in the first chapter, I have a you know, typology of, you know, what's sovereignty, and I talk about, you know, different types of centralization. One, we've already been discussing when, you know, centralization of political authority, but another form of centralization is through homogenization of, of society, because if if society becomes more homogenous, the center by <laughs> definition has more power, right? Because there's like less less resistance, right? It's less uh, so if like people are less lumpy, they're <laughs> less granular, like there. It's so I think by you know a turn to uh, more policed forms of uh, religion and then kind of. Policing like what's kind of right behavior, wrong behavior that's another way of uh, of governing that can again temporarily help bolster you know the authority of the center, but eventually that gives more power to religious figures like the ulema. So what ended up happening in the Ottoman context is uh, we see the power of the court increasingly checked you know starting at the end of 16th century but increasingly in the 17th century the essentially what you could call Ottoman absolutism uh, the Chingizid model like is increasingly checked by by the ulama because in a religious society <laughs> uh, the ulema, by definition have more power i mean so, but others others as well there are other centers of authority that emerge so that's that's the tension you know you can lean on religion to solve your temporary <laughs> lack of conquest problem but that creates its own you know forms of resistance
0: it's fascinating this inverse relationship between centralized sovereignty in the hands of the sovereign the sultan whatever on the one hand and religious homogenization on the other so at the height of mughal centralized power Likewise, there's more religious pluralism. You write, quote, True to Chinggisid influences, Akbar encouraged debate among scholars of different faiths, founding in 1575 the House of Worship, where he allowed, and you're quoting someone else here, allowed free-ranging discussion on all points of doctrine and metaphysics, not accepting even the most central tenets of Islam, sitting himself as lone spectator, referee, and judge, When this approach caused controversy and religious edicts were issued against him, he put at least two Muslim jurists to death, clearly asserting his authority over them. We tend to think of a sort of authoritarian government as one that would repress religious difference. But in these cases, the sort of more authoritarian the government, the more tolerance and even encouragement of religious pluralism.
1: Yeah, yeah so that's one of the things that's different about the Chinggisid model which I think that's why it's different from just you know garden variety <laughs> kingship because yes all the power is in this one person extremely centralized which means you know religions don't have power even when they convert they don't really they're still saying I'm I'm <laughs> I'm the sovereign uh so as a result they were relatively uninterested in Unless you know, again, they started to give up on this model. Chingizid sovereigns or post-Chingizid Timurid post-Timurid sovereigns were uninterested in repressing heterodox religious practice, or they didn't mind. I mean, they, I mean, they were some of them were interested, you know, having debates. They thought it was amusing, but they didn't really care like what what their subjects practiced. Because they knew they were above it all right it's it comes from a sense of superiority <laughs> they don't think the subjects have any relation to them you know the subjects might as well be cattle or something you know that's that's how uh, above it they are, so what the subjects do don't you know really implicate them even they ostensibly share like a religion yeah, so I think that's where the <laughs> the pluralism comes from, not because you know they were like believers in you know pluralism they they
0: they were they <laughs> were They were not good. They were not uh, model (laughs) proto-liberals. But, I mean, important to point out is, by contrast, even amid this period marked by more religious orthodoxy and confessionalization in the East, Eastern empires remained much more pluralistic, even at their least pluralistic than European polities that increasingly persecuted religious difference and heresy just in brutally
1: <laughs> yes yeah so uh that's that's true and i think that's one of the reasons why asia <laughs> runs into trouble in the 19th century because it's so much more pluralist in this period and then so the transition to the nation-state model is much more difficult i think <laughs> which presumes a more uh homogenous society to begin with which europe had created after you know <laughs> centuries of conflict uh yeah, so they were, I mean, the Ottomans, the Mughals, less saw so the stuff of it, but they were ruling over very, uh, as we would call in today's language, diverse <laughs> societies. The majority of their subjects weren't Muslims. I mean, of course, the original, I mean, the Mongols, the Genghisids, they ruled over, you know, all of Asia. So very, you know, again, so they had to, they couldn't, <laughs> they couldn't be too xenophobic or too much of a stickler about <laughs> this and that you know it just wouldn't it wouldn't work whereas you know in contrast in the 16th century we look at Europe and you know it is actually more certainly more porous in the, uh, more open to influences from the east than it's been made out to be i mean european history is studied as if it was very self-contained and Europeans never learned anything from anybody else. And they came up with everything themselves. I mean, that's the kind of the the standard line. That's not true. I mean, in the book, I talk about the influences of these Asian orders in Europe, especially in the 16th century. So they, they were getting stuff, especially Italian merchants were going back and forth. Uh there was also you know, competition between you know, the Habsburgs and the Ottomans especially that was changing the way that they thought about stuff. But uh Europeans tend to be more more hostile, <laughs> more self-consciously hostile to uh ideas from uh, or like books or teachings that seem to come from outside of outside of Europe. And we've talked about occult sciences and astrology You know, uh, this has been studied, you know, in European history because it was persecuted. And what we know now is actually this stuff was much more important to the Ottomans and the Safavids and the Mughals and so on. It hasn't been really studied, but it was very important to the intellectual uh, milieu. Uh, But it wasn't really persecuted. I mean, it was all, you know, in contrast to Europe. All of that was, you know, very accepted. And even after the turn to more like Sunni or Shia orthodoxy, there was considerable activity (laughs) uh, in these realms. So, yeah, different models.
0: Let's talk more about Europe during this period, because the 16th century is often thought of as the beginning of Europe's rise. But you emphasize that this rise was a relative one. Quote, in the early modern period, European actors still depended on the East, not only for material goods, but also for ideas, especially in the realm of universal sovereignty and world empire. And, and this was particularly true for the Habsburgs. Quote, traditional narratives of the 16th century often observe that within it was the Habsburgs and more than anyone, Charles V, who ruled from 1516 to 15. 56, as the Holy Roman Emperor, also Archduke of Austria, King of Spain, and Lord of the Netherlands, it was he who properly reintroduced notions of universal empire to the continental political landscape, with other European monarchs articulating their own visions in reaction to him. But, without the Ottomans and their Chinggisid heritage, Charles V may not have been remembered for these innovations. Charles's competition with Suleiman I Had a profound influence on him, thus also on the Habsburgs and the broader European trajectory of political development. That's really fascinating. How how is the rise of the absolutist state in Europe conventionally understood? And why, as you argue, does that purported innovation in fact have Eastern and specifically Ottoman origins, origins to be found even more particularly in the Habsburg rivalry and warfare with the Ottomans?
1: Yes. Uh, so this is the stuff that may get me in uh, hot water. I don't know, but uh, I thought I would be provocative and go for it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think I'm on um, a relatively safe ground. I mean, here's the issue. In, as I said before, European history is often studied as very self-contained, especially in my discipline in international relations. When we study uh, history of international relations, it's often European history and almost no mention is made of uh, anything happening to the east of <laughs> the Habsburgs in the in the in the 16th century. Uh, they are this you know great, great uh, house controlling much of you know Europe, uh, and then their competitors are um, you know other European houses. But you know if you take a proper assessment of 16th century, <laughs> none of the other you know European houses were anywhere nearly as strong as. The Habsburgs, uh, I mean, they, they might not have, you know, liked <laughs> Habsburgs, but they, they, they didn't pose a real threat to them, especially in the first half of the 16th century. What you have instead is right to the eastern uh, flank are the Ottomans, uh, who are already at this point, uh, you know, as you explained before, they have a strong claim to being or being on their way to universal empire, uh, and then, you know, and to their East, is like the ardo the and there's this whole world beyond, right? So <laughs> what makes more sense that the Habsburgs were only concerned of uh, with other European uh, houses because they could see into the future and they knew like uh, England w- was <laughs> one day going to ha- be like the British Empire and so on? Or does it make more sense from the vantage point of the 16th century? That they were really preoccupied with uh, with the Ottomans, uh, who were their main rival in Europe and also in the Mediterranean, uh, North Africa, etc. So, and then, you know, if your main rival is claiming to be a universal sovereign, a millennial sovereign, lord of conjunction, lord of time, <laughs> the, you know, the ultimate ruler at the end of days... Uh, I think that also, like, affects <laughs> the kind of claims uh, that you're making. Because, as I said, you know, the, the this language was transcultural. It wasn't specific to any religion. It was really cutting across. So in the same places that the Habsburgs are trying to rule over, uh, as the Ottomans are claiming, you know, Eastern Europe, etc.,
0: and both sides, and both sides thought that the apocalypse was coming.
1: Yeah, they, both sides thought the apocalypse was coming—the end of days, you know, this <laughs> marked by this conjunction. So, so I think it really, you know, changes the language of you know universal sovereignty on the Habsburg side. Of course, also on the Ottoman side. So the Ottomans were picking up stuff that Charles V, stuff he was doing, and they were, you know, doing stuff in. Suleiman <laughs> was, you know, had this. Uh, this uh, crown made, I discuss. It's, you know that wasn't. <laughs> there are a lot of, by the way, hats and crowns in this book, uh, for for those who are interested in kind of like a side history of that. That he wouldn't have made had he not been worried about you know uh, the claims of the Habsburgs. But so there is. I'm arguing there is this uh, resonance. You know they they are in this competition and that's that's changing. The way that they are speaking the language of uh, sovereignty, but arguably, I mean, more so on the Habsburg side, because again, what's happening there is unusual, right? You are suddenly having in a in a landscape where you know you have elected <laughs> um, monarchs and church, etc. Suddenly, you are you have this person claiming to be. At the center of it all, above, above it all, above the church even, right? I mean, where is that coming from? That's that's sounding a little bit like is <laughs> uh, its sovereign to me. I mean, so I, I, I think, again, I'm not a proper historian, <laughs> but I think one could be provocative and say he wouldn't have gone to these lengths if he didn't have the example of these other uh, other rulers to his east making these types of claims and then of course that sets into motion a chain of events <laughs> in european history where you know you have other upstart houses reacting to the habsburgs and making their own you know arguments and these patterns <laughs> of confessionalization and so on so um At least it's something to think about, I think, uh, how European history would have gone if if it was what it was imagined to be. If Europe was an island never influenced by anybody else, I think European history would be very different.
0: I'm Aziz Rana, and you're listening to The Dig, a great place for analysis about where we are, how we got here, and what can be done. It's my favorite podcast, and you can support it at patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com. And by Phenomenal World, a publication run out of the Jane Family Institute that puts out rigorous and clarifying research and writing to help you understand the complexities of the global political economy. Phenomenal World has featured many excellent dig guests, like Tim Barker, Melinda Cooper, Femi Taiwo, Daniela Gabor, and Isabella Weber. If you're looking for deep analysis of things like the politics of monetary policy, the relationship between financial capital and development in the global south, how organized labor lost to the construction industry, how the IMF is making it hard for poor countries to decarbonize, the way US dollar hegemony shapes global politics, and so much more. Visit PhenomenalWorld.org and subscribe to get their original articles and their weekly newsletters of relevant research and writing. That's PhenomenalWorld.org. Head there to read and subscribe. I'm ad-libbing this into the ad, but so you know, it is a really good publication, and I will put a link in the show notes. At about the same time as the ottoman habsburg rivalry, modern Russia was emerging from under the golden hordes rule. You write, quote, The Jochids, unlike the Ilkhanate in Persia or the Yuan in China, did not eventually assimilate into the local culture, preferring to rule Russian towns from a distance as vassals. This governance choice strengthened Muscovy over other principalities as they collected tribute and taxes in the name of the Khan. What role, then, did Jochid rule play, if any, in shaping Ivan III's brutal, and in the case of Ivan IV or Ivan the Terrible, extremely brutal rule. Because you write, quote, absolute power was not assumed to be natural in the Russian context. To the contrary, princes, boyars, and even the church, not to mention other cities such as Novgorod, had considerable independent authority in Russia at the time Ivan came to power. The idea that absolutism or autocracy comes naturally to Russians is as false as the idea that it comes naturally to Muslim societies. To what degree did Mongol heritage shape czarist Russia? And, and to what extent did the Rurik dynasty innovate a new and more brutal form of rule?
1: So... This is in line with what I was saying earlier, how, you know, Islam had developed its own separation of (laughs) religion and uh, political rule before uh, the Mongols came over. And so we associate, you know, Islamic rulers with, you know, autocracy, but actually (laughs) that's an innovation that happens uh, post... Well, autocracy is a lot of term, let's say centralization is an innovation that happens... uh, post uh, 13th, 14th, 15th century. So I'm making a similar argument about uh, Russia. And obviously like, you know, uh, there is this this idea, you know, often (laughs) this argument often made about Russia that, you know, Russians love autocracy or like this is like their natural state. But actually if we look at the history just as in any other geography, there are experiments in centralization, and then there are, there are experiments in uh, decentralization. Uh, so this is not <laughs> in any way like which which one is going to have the upper hand. I don't think is predetermined. So what we're seeing in post Golden Horde is is the influence of you know the Chingizid model on uh, Russian cities, especially Moscow, and of course, this is a you know big debate in Russian historiography, like the degree of influence, especially because you know there were long periods of silence. You know there was this idea of like the Mongol yoke, and as we discussed with the Ming, you know once the Mongols had been, <laughs> the yoke had been thrown off, Moscow is supposed to have become you know its own thing, like ex- you know example of Russian culture, but just as with the early ming we we can see the influences of the chinggisid sovereign model on Moscovy. uh so again you know we ha- we see this centralized model ivan the 3rd but then especially ivan the IV, 4th you know claiming all this power <laughs> in their person and again they are you know
0: really to run a regime of terror through i don't know how to pronounce it Opera China?
1: yeah um yes so this is Exactly, say like this period of, I thought, yeah, there's no better way to describe it. It really is a reign of terror. Very modern in some ways. Um, yeah. So, but I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not arguing that the the this period of this reign of terror, where like Ivan the IV, Fourth like destroyed like enemies and you know sacked cities and you know this you know essentially did, you know um, created a state of exception <laughs> that was necessarily like the Mongol influence. I think, you know, again, you know, there's like an amalgamation of different factors. So, but certainly like the centralization uh, of authority in in the Tsar. So there's like this rethinking of the Tsar. I mean, the, the Caesar, you know, <laughs> that word is from the Roman <laughs> timeline. But uh, the Khan, I mean, there's also like a degree of Khan-ness to the to this uh type of rule and again you know again influences of also Christianity I make the argument that you know certain xenophobic or repressive aspects of uh, the rule in this period was more like Europe in that period (laughs) uh, and earlier periods rather than or like European Christianity uh, rather than it was like the Asian model of as, as we discussed before like Letting people be because you don't care, <laughs> you know um so that's it's a it's a mix and not a particularly good mix, <laughs> I think for the people living in that period, but you you certainly can see the influences so I mean one of my arguments in that chapter is in the sixteenth century you have a globalizing world which has its in its core, not Europe as it's usually assumed, but you have these Uh, West Asian empires from the Ottomans. Ottomans Safavids, Mughals, Uzbeks, uh, that are controlling a majority of the world's economy, a third of the world's population. This is really the core of (laughs) the order, world order in the 16th century. And they have very strong Chingisid influences, especially in the first half of the 16th century. You have the Ming, who have moved away from this Cengizet model, but they are still not entirely <laughs> uh, not influenced. Uh, you have, you know, the little conets in Central Asia <laughs> that are still operating with these notions. And then in Moscow you have another uh, major house that's <laughs> acting in many ways, not entirely, but in many ways, like a Cengizet house, and then, of course, in Europe you have the Habsburgs who are getting influenced by this. So it's a different reading of 16th century, rather than you know uh, a story of like European rise. I mean, Europe will rise later, but uh, if you if the world had ended <laughs> at the end of 16th century, uh, you know it wouldn't. You know, uh, the story would have you know <laughs> the, would have been understood differently.
0: The post-Timurid empires that you write about were hit hard by a world order-shaking crisis known as the 17th century general crisis. Even though the Ottoman Empire lasts through World War One, Ottomans in the 16th and 17th century, and then later Turkish historians looking back, saw this period as the beginning of the end, a period of decline. And the Mughals, likewise, were consumed by declinist narratives. You write, quote, Note, That what is considered to be the root cause of decline by Eastern observers of their own polities, depersonalization of sovereignty, increased increased bureaucratization of the state, and so on, is precisely one of the explanations given for progress in European historiography. In Europe, far from being associated with decline, such developments have been hailed for ushering in an age of enlightenment and rational state behavior. How do we square these circles? How do you square those circles? And then what was the 17th century general crisis? And why why did it damage the 16th century world order, given that many of the particular polities not only endured, but went on to, in an objective sense, to continue to thrive?
1: So the you know we've talked before about these periods of crisis uh, punctuating the you know the end of the these world orders as i've described them causing fragmentation you know 14th century <laughs> mid 15th century and so on but those were shorter periods of disruption whereas you know there's a longer period lasting from the end of 16th century to the last quarter of the 17th century that some historians call the general crisis of the 17th century. And this was originally thought to be a European problem because as many people know, the 17th century in Europe is particularly volatile. You have, you know, again, (laughs) these reactions to the Habsburgs uh, ending with, you know, the 30 years war, you have civil wars elsewhere in um, Yeah, so it's but then you know increasingly there's been a recognition that it wasn't like nobody was at least in the northern hemisphere was doing great. You have you know time of troubles in Moscow, succession crisis essentially. You have rebellions uh, in the Ottoman Empire, like really severe, decades lasting uh, rebellions, Uh, and you know you have the end of the Ming in china yeah so it seems to be this politically really volatile period and again you know what caused it there have been different explanations there have been political explanations which don't seem nearly enough if we accept that these things were you know caused by the same <laughs> underlying you know trends you know it, it can't be like the politics of this place or that place uh, there have been financial explanations, you know, the impact of, uh, you know, new world silver, you know, the residual impact on world economy, etc. But lately, historians have been favoring climate change as an explanation because this was the peak period of what's known as the Little Ice Age, this period that lasts from around, you know, 13th century to the 19th century to the Industrial Revolution. Uh, so. I've already mentioned some. Some argue that 13th century was wet, <laughs> allowing uh, Mongolian horses, <laughs> and then world gets keeps getting colder, at least in the northern hemisphere. Uh, and you know, 17th century is when it's supposed to have hit its peak. This period, so um, we know that the 17th century was at least two. Well, I think two or three degrees Celsius. Colder. I don't know what that is in <laughs> Fahrenheit. Um, So it was colder and there were all these weather events. Uh, and as a result, there were food shortages and all sorts of scarcity. And maybe this is what caused, you know, the unrest, underlying unrest. Again, you know, I don't have a strong argument as to what caused <laughs> this period of crisis. What we know is that it was a prolonged period of Political instability across Eurasia. And what I argue is that what this ended up doing is fragmenting the connections in this emerging 16th century global order that I described with its center in West Asia. Uh, it forced, I think it really disrupted uh, trade, uh, overland trade especially. Uh, and there may be an argument as to, you know, maybe maritime connections being more advantageous as a result. Uh, But we do know overland trade was disrupted, maybe both because of (laughs) climate reasons, but also because it became unsafe to go from point. Uh, You know, because overland trade in Asia for, you know, apart from these little periods of crisis, had been facilitated by the fact that Asia compared to Europe was always you know, apart from like periods of conquest was much more stable and safer and easier to like move around. It took a long time, but (laughs) you didn't have to worry too much about safety on the road. So that trade was disrupted, I think, as, you know, uh, everywhere, you know, was shaken by its own political issues. And then I think things like rebellions, or, I mean, you could think of 30 years war as a kind of rebellion as well you know, let's say rebellions in general, like dynastic, you know, what leads to Ming being asked to do a kind of rebellion. So rebellions all across. uh, That forces everybody kind of to turn inward. And when you turn inward, again, your connections fray. So you're no longer uh, competing, you're no longer (laughs) trying to build a world empire or any kind of world order. Uh, I mean, I think there are lessons in that for our time. So the order phrase and this is what's lost in the 17th century crisis because then eventually there's material recovery. I mean, even for uh, I mean, we talk about, you know, Euro- Europe's rise later, but even the Asian empires that I'm looking at, you know, apart from like, you know, th- there might have been dynastic change and so on, but if we take them as, you know, states, you know, they they are, they are doing okay. There's material expansion. Uh, you know, the Qing they expand um, the Romanovs, who replace you know the, the Rurik, you know Russia. This is a period of expansion for uh, Moscow, Russia. I mean, what eventually becoming Russian Empire. Uh, even the Ottomans in the eighteenth century are are not doing badly. So where does this <laughs> decline <laughs> narrative come from, right? Because what ended up happening is in the 19th century when europe is really like at the door of like asia as a result of you know industrial revolution and various uh, military advantages at the end of you know 19th century when also like this civilizational superiority narrative is coming from europe to some extent that's uh, internalized right by asian elites they kind of accept this idea that they had been Declining for <laughs> uh, centuries, uh, and they set about you know the new nationalist modernizers and so on. Right, set about like how do we fix this problem of centuries of decline? But materially, there wasn't really centuries of decline. What you have is maybe even deindustrialization de- that happens in like nineteenth century. So you have relatively parallel <laughs> stories, the which flips or like the great divergence as they call it, like in the nineteenth century. So why did they believe it? I think it's, they believed it. I mean, that brings me to your first question. They believed it because something was lost in the 17th century. And there were these debates, you know, it was a period of crisis. There were these debates about, oh, are we declining? So it seemed like, and what was lost is this, a particular kind of world order <laughs> uh, held together in these, like uh, by these shared notions of universal sovereignty and so on. Uh, and as they settled into another way of being, you know, there were a lot of people writing like in the Ottoman Empire and so on, writing, you know, this is decline, like the, the Sultan, you know, is weak, you know, but actually, you know, in European history, that's considered like a positive thing because they're not coming, they're not operating with the same norms of like what constitutes weakness. And so, on. so it's like a lot of things come together to create this, narrative of uh, centuries of decline when it's really decades uh, of (laughs) maybe being surpassed uh, economically, materially.
0: As you've noted, each world order in your book ends, thanks, at least in part, to what you call a structural crisis. Quote, underlying all of these general crises were structural pressures. The benefit of long durée hindsight coupled with a global vision, allows us to see that political turmoil during these crises and during the ensuing fragmentation of the existing order was not really caused by specific great house rivalries or power transition, i.e. the things IR worries most about as being corrosive to order, but rather structural dynamics such as climate change, epidemics, demographic decline, monetary problems, and so on, i.e. the things IR has not worried at all about until recently. Why, by contrast, do you argue that rivalries are in fact constitutive? of order and constitutive of what you call the ecumene underlying any given order rather than a threat to that order? And why And why does a world order's reproduction rely on an ecumene?
1: Yeah. So by ecumene, I mean like deep shared norms that uh, connect uh, successive world orders. So like in our, I mean, our modern international order, I mean, we could say we're in the post-Cold War order or, you know, sometimes called the liberal international order, or maybe we're even out of that, we're in the next, whatever, it doesn't have a name. But that's still connected to the Cold War order. Uh, And before the Cold War order, we had the, you know, the European concert system and the, you know, so they are linked to each other in recognizable ways because they share certain norms about, you know, their understanding of sovereignty which is linked to territoriality, linked to, you know, national self-determination, even if it's, you know, violated in practice, there are these ideas of like what justifies sovereignty or how a great power acts, you know, that, you know, it's, there. <laughs> as as the orders change, there is still a continuity that's organizing them, uh, normative continuity, and making them somewhat similar to each other, uh, or at least overlapping in recognizable ways. So I was arguing, you know, by studying Asian Eastern world orders, it helps us realize that, uh, you know, what we, you know, we think orders are undermined by rivalry, great power rivalry, but actually great ri- power rivalry can help reinforce deep norms uh so it may be actually constitutive of order. I mean, the the, the clear example of that is, again, you know, Cold War. You you have the U.S. and the Soviet Union, and they are great rivals, right? They have different ideologies, uh, but at the same time, what they agree on <laughs> reinforces uh, that deep norm. Uh, I mean, they agree on the fact that you know, great powers are at least officially not empires <laughs> they agree that great powers have like spheres of influence they agree on you know at least
0: they agree that material material progress is the sign of a great power thus the kitchen debate between nixon and khrushchev
1: exactly or uh, you know the arms race and you know so th- there is a lot that they agree on as they seem to as they seem to disagree on a lot And I think maybe it's Bourdieu, I'm not sure who said, like, the greatest orthodoxy is, like, (laughs) uh, is created by a seeming, like, (laughs) binary. Uh, And uh, so something like that is, you know, what I had in mind. So, I mean, in my world orders, you have these, you know, great houses. Uh, They seem to be competing, like the Mughals, the Safavids, uh, the Ottomans, even the Habsburgs. But to the extent that they agree, like, (laughs) <laughs> the end of the world, like, you know, uh, we're looking at, you know, the end of the world and we are competing to be millennial sovereigns. You know, they are producing a particular type of order of uh, shared norms and so on. So, and I think international relations has overlooked that, you know, how you don't have have to, agreement doesn't always have to be explicit Uh, And often like rivalry is made possible by (laughs) being very similar in a lot of ways. Otherwise, you're not really (laughs) you can't really compete. You know, if you're very, very different in how you do things, uh, then you wouldn't be, you know, you wouldn't be competing.
0: There's a tacit but very powerful agreement on premises.
1: Yes, exactly. Uh, That
0: are are naturalized and normalized and assumed to to not be, you know, contingent at all.
1: Yes. I mean, you can see it in anything. I mean, uh, in American politics, you know, until recently, you know, there was (laughs) a lot of that between the two major parties. I mean, maybe there still is, but I mean, maybe that's breaking down. Uh, And that's, you know, that created a certain kind of uh, mainstream kind of (laughs) understanding of, like, you know, the American political landscape. So uh, it's no different uh, when we're talking about world order uh, creation and uh, reproduction, I think. So what really disrupts I think order is not that, it's not rivalry. It's uh, what really disrupts order are things beyond, beyond, you know, our choices and agency in a way uh, and things that, that fragment those connections, I mean, whether the connections are rivalry or cooperation. Uh, when you're not engaging at all, that's <laughs> that's what disrupts, uh, disrupts order. So when when these uh, competing houses uh, turn inwards, you know, for whatever the reason, then order fragments. And then, you know, if if it can be reconstituted relatively quickly, then the people who are reconstituted are likely to be like those who, <laughs> who were the previous orders. But then if it's not reconstituted for a long time, as it happens in the, I think, arguably in the 17th century, then, you know, New actors can take over and create their version of order. I think that's kind of the story I'm getting at.
0: You write, quote, If the material gap between Europe and Asia or Eurasia before the second half of the 19th century has thus been retroactively exaggerated, why did Eastern elites so easily fold ontologically in especially the second half of the 19th century, when faced with narratives of European civilizational superiority. To put it another way, why were they so easily stigmatized by Western actors? Why did they internalize the Western civilizational schema which found them inferior, even as they challenged their own country's particular placement within that schema? In other words, We take the East's developmental inferiority complex for granted, but we should not do so because it began to take shape well before the Industrial Revolution decisively put Europe ahead of Asia in material terms. How then did these two declinists' narratives about the East, European and Eastern, quote, seem to corroborate each other? And what impact did that corroboration have?
1: Yes, thank you. So this discussion comes out of my first book in a way, uh, which was called After Defeat, uh, How the East Learned to Live with the West. And then that book focused on 19th and 20th century. And I was looking at essentially Turkey after Ottoman Empire, Japan after World War II, and Russia after the Cold War. And how Eastern powers were incorporated into the modern international order. And, you know, what you find it's like this common thread starting in 19th century of what I call stigmatization. So Europe is saying we are a superior civilization and you're backward. And there seems to be, I mean, the elites in these settings don't like this, obviously, but they seem to agree that there is a civilizational hierarchy and they often, you know, challenge, you know, we're not at this uh, rung of the ladder, but we're here or, you know, we're actually Europeans or something, right? So there is uh, there is internalization of uh, these social hierarchies as they are being spouted by like Europeans at the end of the 19th century, which of course is like oh, particularly uh, uh, Racial, race, racist, and you know, problematic period in you know European thinking as well. But after you know, I finished that book, it became kind of a puzzle for me in my own mind. Like, I mean, I knew that this was a commonly shared reaction across uh, Asia, like internalizing the stigma uh, of civilizational decline and backwardness. And it was part of modernizing narratives everywhere. But then I thought, well, why should it be so? Because if it's true that you know Asia was for for the first time connected by <laughs> Europeans into one international order, right? Because that's the story we, the story we tell. Like Europe, uh, Asia was regionalized. All A- Asian activity is regional activity, and it's only europe and the west that uh, links asia with the global order if that's the case like why should they have this uniform almost uniform reaction like they should have much more varied reactions <laughs> across uh, across uh, the continent so i thought well what explains the similarity you know why why are these stories similar and that's wh- that's what got me thinking about this book project, like (laughs) wanting to explain uh, the similarities across Asia that I thought were unexplained. And then I ended up going all the way back to (laughs) the 13th century. But uh, I mean, to come back to your question, uh, what's happening, I think is, uh, as I said, in the 19th century, there is this crisis of confidence. And then, you know, In order to explain it you know the there's kind of a latching onto existing narratives of of decline and often you know the existing narratives of decline are to be found in the 17th century even though there is (laughs) there is period of there's a period of recovery material recovery in the middle so then you know that those older narratives of decline are put back into circulation I mean, this certainly happened in the Ottoman Empire. You know, the, <laughs> a lot of this stuff was printed. You know, the debates in the 17th century. The sultan is weak. You know, <laughs> he's being led by, like, the women in the court or whatever. You know, that's uh, that sort of... Uh, so, and then that becomes... You know, that seems to corroborate what the Europeans are saying about <laughs> this... Uh, there, there have been, there having been, like, centuries of decline. Even though... You know what? What the 17th century observers are are bemoaning as causes of decline are the same things that in European history are <laughs> are held uh, to be you know positive steps in the development of you know rational, uh, states. You know weakening of like the power of the uh, absolutist court. So yeah, it's I I don't know. I mean, readers will have to look at the book. It's. It's a bit of a convoluted story, but I think <laughs> one that's very interesting. Uh, and again, there are lessons for, you know, present day there
0: as well. So the crisis of confidence precedes the Industrial Revolution. And yet the decisive economic shift after the Industrial Revolution did have a major impact. It de-industrialized and economically subjugated the East within this new capitalist world system. What, what does your assessment emphasizing the centrality of ecumenical decline make of the role played by this raw materiality of Western power unleashed by industrialization and capitalist takeoff.
1: I mean, capitalism is a you know big part of the story uh, of, you know, why the, why the story ends the way it did. Uh, but I do open the book with this, you know, counterfactual as you saw, like what if, uh, <laughs> what if history had ended in a different way? Like, um, what if Japan had had industrial revolution and then it was, you know, West, uh, it was East Asia, you know, that took off, you know, where if that, that became, you know, the developments that we associate with Western Europe with industrial capitalism. Like what if that happened in Asia? So I think that's really like for me, well, capitalism, but really industrial capitalism is really what changes the end of uh, the story. I'm sympathetic to what's called the the California school uh, that it could have happened n- not in Europe but somewhere else. I mean, there is a contingency to where it happened. I mean, there were certainly specific circumstances in Europe that made it possible, like especially post uh, uh, post the discovery of Americas and so on. So, I mean, I suppose to answer your question, I mean, in in the in the book. I mean this book is about order making and about ideas about particular models like sovereignty models what I call accumunary like these deep norms that connect successive orders and so on but in um in terms of like turning points uh I do emphasize what I call like structural pressures and also like Materiality, like so, whether that's industrial capitalism or industrial revolution and so on, Uh, all of that stuff is very important to my narrative. Uh, At the same time, like how their impact uh, and how people react to, you know, those developments have to do with the kind of ideas and norms that they're operating in. So the two are connected, and even though I emphasize more like what's happening in the realm of ideas. I'm not <laughs> at all discounting what, like, what's happening in the realm of the economy and other, other uh, realms of materiality.
0: Along those lines, how, how do you differentiate a world order from what Marxist world systems theorists, and there are, as you note in your book, diverse and divergent, you know, sets of scholars here that world systems theorists have called the world system? How does how does a world order compare to a world system? Or are they synonymous?
1: I mean, they they, they are similar. I, I think world system theorists have done some of the best work in terms of, <laughs> you know, pointing to the parts of global history we've forgotten about. I mean, not so much Wallerstein. I think he was a bit too Eurocentric. But uh, others have... I mean, they've been writing for like decades on <laughs> how connected the world has been, and you know, it's all there. So I mean, do respect. I'm I'm not. <laughs> in some ways, you know, I'm telling the same story, but emphasizing uh, uh, different aspects of it. So I'm more interested in these, you know, because what I'm really interested in as a uh, as a theorist is you know <laughs> sovereignty and order and. You know, the, uh, ideas people have about <laughs> sovereignty and order, these patterns of centralization and decentralization and so on. So I'm emph- emphasizing those aspects of it. But of course, underlying all of that uh, is our economic relations uh, as well. So I'm, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I suppose I'm more on the, like the Weberian side of the equation, but I, I also very much respect what <laughs> what they have done.
0: You argue that the the reigning great power hegemon, that being the United States, is not key to the perpetuation of the present world order. What, what would it mean then to pass from this world order to another one?
1: Yeah, and, uh, I mean, it has to do with these, you know, deep, uh, deep norms that organize the way we think about world politics. And this is why, you know, you you opened with the question of like, what do we learn from (laughs) this history of uh, Asia? Uh, And I said, you know, we forgot this history. If we forget this history, like, what does that mean? Like, we can't even imagine forgetting (laughs) um, like this Western-centered international order. But I mean, to move to a truly new world order, I think would require an ecumenical shift, right? A different way of, organizing sovereignty the world being centered elsewhere <laughs> other than the west i mean what i was trying to say to my fellow ir scholars is you know we we the debate is often oh you know china is rising china you know when china is you know surpasses the us it's a post-western world but it it doesn't have to be I mean we have as you know again to use a domestic analogy, you know we have situations where women or minorities come to positions of power, and it doesn't really change the underlying <laughs> organization of 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 the order right it like <laughs> the norms remain in place and it may Weaken those norms, but
0: it may strengthen. It may strengthen the norms sometimes.
1: <laughs> it may strengthen them, you know, by creating a certain backlash or, yeah. So, um, you know, truly post post Western post Westphalian world, I think, requires something like what happened to my world orders. <laughs> they became, they fragmented, and then something else arose in their place, and then they were almost erased from history. And it's possible, you know, we could be looking at (laughs) another century of general crisis. Again, all of the factors, you know, we've discussed are seemingly at play. Uh, There's increased fragmentation in our order. Uh, Increasingly, you know, everybody's turning more inward. Yeah, so that sounds like a recipe for (laughs) order fragmentation to me. Uh, Then maybe, you know, I I'm, I'm, i don't want to sound like I'm necessarily wishing for this, but it is possible that, you know, we may be nearing the end of this particular ecumene.
0: Yeah, you just said that you're not necessarily looking forward to this. It's just something that that's happening, perhaps. And you note that the normalization of Asian decline narratives have not only been imposed from the West, but also or from the East prior to actual objective decline, but also by nationalist post colonial successor states. And you write that today it is, quote, not only mainstream IR that is constrained in its imagination of a post Western future. Critical scholars of especially decolonial sensibilities may think they know what such a future looks like because they often advocate for it. However, they are also working with ahistorical assumptions. How do critics of Western domination? mirror its champions in their demonization of the West and idealization, romanticization of the non-West. And what sort of consequences does that have? How does that cloud our thinking about how to move forward in these extremely uncertain times?
1: You know, the, the traditional, like the Whiggish version of history was, you know, about... Um, you know europe bringing civilization <laughs> to the rest of the world i suppose uh and then now you know increasingly there's been you know uh, uh, criticism after criticism and the histories we work with are eurocentric but often you know that turns into saying you know everything is um the west's fault or european's fault uh and i think both kind of center the West uh, or Europeans in history. Uh, and to truly truly really move beyond uh, eurocentricism, uh, I think we need to realize not everything has to do with, <laughs> with Europe or the West and there are you know good and bad, bad actors in Asia as well. I mean my book is a story of empire building. I'm not advocating for it. You know, it's not like, oh, like Europeans had empires and how great, and like Asians also had empires, how great, it's not that, <laughs> you know. It's, <laughs> uh, they were also like very brutal. I mean, in some similar ways and some different ways. Um, but but the empires did facilitate, you know, exchange and so on. So And they created shared histories. So that's not like... An empire apology. It's like, you know, a fact you can see. So um, yeah, I think also, you know, we are all as, I mean, another thing that I'm trying to convey in the book, we're all shaped by our experiences, whether we like them or not, whether we embrace them or not. And our world has been shaped by the West for a century and more. So This idea that, you know, if Western domination and, you know, like authentic Eastern (laughs) civilizations will reemerge or something, I think that's or like idealization of the East or like the non-West, you know, because there's not, you know, these are not everybody's, everything is relational. Like, right. There isn't like a pure (laughs) East waiting to be rescued or to emerge from like the shadows. Like it's part of the same 100 year old 200 year history and there are a lot of things i think that have to do with problems of the nation state that at least in asia like you know people were headed that way anyway i i don't think it <laughs> it really took uh europeans to push them in that direction um so yeah i mean <laughs> to make a long story short world politics it's complicated and they're good then bad actors everywhere. And also depends on your perspective, like right, who you think is a good and bad actor is. So I don't think we should, you know, I agree, like, at least in my discipline in international relations, the history has been very Eurocentric. But the solution to that is not to say, you know, just to say that. I think we need to develop which is what I was trying to do in this book, alternative histories that both decenter the West but at the same time, don't idealize non-Western actors, like restore their agency without, you know, this simplistic idea that they must have been great just because they were not Western or European.
0: Yeah, I would not be eager to live under Genghis Khan's <laughs> rule. <laughs> Where commoners retreated we're yeah. no better well, than if cattle. You, if you, you survived right. the
1: conquest, then it wasn't so bad. <laughs>
0: well, Aisha Zarako... Thank you very, very much.
1: Thank you. This has been a great pleasure, uh, truly.
0: Aisha Zarakal is a professor of international relations at the University of Cambridge and a fellow at Emmanuel College. She's the author of After Defeat, How the East Learned to Live with the West, and her new book that we discussed today, before the West, the rise and fall of Eastern world orders. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that, there is something in human history like retribution, and it is a rule of historical retribution, that its instrument be forged not by the offended, but by the offender himself. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis and recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Tamoose Frankel, Gemma Sack, and Marielle Solomon. Our senior advisor is Theorio Francos. Check out our vast archives at TheDigRadio.com. Follow us on Twitter at TheDigRadio, and please do find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it is on iTunes or wherever, please also rate and review us nicely. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But what really does that is you telling other people about the show. Please make propaganda for us and do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge.